I should begin with a confession here. I'm in love with the organ player. <laughs> Take her out on dates. I just had to get that off my chest. I also love dearly our, our family, and I'm thankful that our daughter, Maria, her husband, Jared, her son-in-law, and our granddaughter is here with us today. Brethren, we're going to be having our annual church meeting at the end of our service here. And I wanted to take a, a moment here this morning to take a, a momentary break from Philemon in order to help us to fix our eyes on Jesus. To understand that our highest duty and privilege in life is to look to him and to long for him and his return. To do this, I, I want to bring us to the book of Revelation. And I want to remind you of the fact that John, as he said, he was on the Isle of Patmos. He was in the spirit on the Lord's day. And he said this in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 12. He said, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the middle of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, and girded across his breast with a golden girdle, and his head and his hair were white like wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire, and his feet were like burnished bronze when it has been caused to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters and in his right hand he held seven stars and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword and his face was like the sun shining in its strength and then John says that he fell like a dead man at this very sight of the Lord Jesus Christ, as he saw him in the great glory of the Savior, John fell like a dead man. Then John saw within this vision the revelation of the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ issued epistles, letters to the seven churches in Asia. And thematically, he gives exhortations to each of these churches, reminding those who were in these churches that they had a duty to persevere and overcome what trials they did face. To the church at Ephesus that had lost its first love, Jesus said to him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life. To the church at Smyrna that was going through trials and that would endure trials even unto death, Jesus said, he who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. To the church at Pergamum that was dealing with corrupt teaching, the teachings of Balaam and of the Nicolaitans, he said, to him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone which no one knows but he who receives it. To the church at Thyatira that had the false prophetess Jezebel who was afflicting the church with her doctrines, he said this, 
and he who overcomes, and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces. To the church at Sardis, that had a reputation of being alive but was dead, Jesus says, he who overcomes shall thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. And to the church at Philadelphia that was being persecuted by the synagogue of Satan, Jesus said this to the overcomers. He said, he who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it anymore, and I will write upon him the name of my God. And finally, to the lukewarm church at Laodicea, which Jesus promised that he would spew them out of his mouth for their compromise, he said, he who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne. Seven times the Lord Jesus Christ issues these promises to those who are overcomers, who persevere even through the trials that they themselves were facing he promises them that he would give and grant the riches and blessings that only he can give, which will be consummated ultimately in eternal glory. Then John saw this remarkable vision of the great and glorious revelation of our God, who is declared to be holy, holy, holy. The inhabitants of heaven declare, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And when the living creatures give glory and honor to and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, it says that the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy art thou, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou didst create all things, and because of thy will, they existed and were created. And then we come to the fifth chapter. Having had this moment where the seven churches in Asia Minor are are addressed and the overcomers within these churches are overdressed, we are then introduced to the great overcomer overall. In Revelation chapter 5, John sees this remarkable vision that led him to tears. He says, And I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne in a, a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. And I began to weep greatly. Stop there. Why is John crying? Because this scroll with its seven seals represents the consummation of God's work of redemption and judgment, which is the portal through which eternity 
will commence. And it is the portal through which the redeemed will enter into eternal glory. And this is the portal through which the lost will enter into eternal condemnation. This is the consummation of the ages. This scroll and its seven seals represents that. John, wanting to see the contents of the scroll and wanting them to be opened up, cries when, when there is no one found worthy to open the scroll. And then comes verse 5. And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. He's overcome. Our great overcomer is the only reason why we overcome. The overcomers who were addressed in the seven churches in Asia Minor, they are exhorted to overcome because our great overcomer, Jesus Christ, is our hope. He's our strength, and he's the only reason why we can overcome at all. What is it with this word overcome? And by the way, this term is found throughout the New Testament. And it's a word that's worthy of contemplation and consideration is the thing that I really would like for us to consider here this morning. It's the word Nikkei. Nikkei. It means specifically the idea of something that achieves victory or something that bears superiority either in a physical or metaphysical sense. In the New Testament, it speaks of the idea of an endurance that results in a final win or victory. That's why it is frequently translated as the word overcomer. This is an important concept. The child of God is exhorted to overcome, to be overcomers, to, pers to persevere in this life, but we're called to do this by virtue of the fact that Jesus Christ is our great overcomer and he alone is our trust and confidence. I believe that this is a truth that we need to think about daily. Brethren, without Christ, there is no victory. Without Christ, there is no sense in which we can overcome anything. The more we understand that, I think the better off we will be. And I would say to you that even the earliest pedagogy that the disciples received came after the Lord had ministered to them for three years. Upon his death, burial, and resurrection, we find this amazing moment that when the disciples came to the tomb, they discovered this moment with the individual who's dressed in white robes, declared to them regarding the empty tomb that he said, do not be amazed. The tomb is empty. And he says, do not be amazed. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who has been crucified. He is risen. He's not here. Why? Because he is the great overcomer over sin, over death, over the grave. And what's remarkable to me, when you think about it, when you read the Gospels, the disciples were very slow to comprehend this whole idea. In fact, 
After this event, the disciples were still struggling with what they had witnessed and seen. And even in Mark 16, we read that the Lord Jesus Christ appeared to them and reproached them for their unbelief and hardness of heart. We know that even in the moment of his crucifixion, the disciples scattered in fear and in a sense of disbelief as to what would happen. They needed to understand that Jesus Christ is our overcomer, and he demonstrated that when he was risen from the grave. For a moment, they, like us sometimes, remain in the dark caves of their own doubt and unbelief until the, the Lord of glory, the risen Lord of glory, shone through, after which they became changed men and women who would actually die for the fact of the resurrection. The Lord Jesus Christ is the greatest overcomer of all. And brethren, this morning, I just want to survey a few points and principles from this text of Scripture and consider together the nature, the work, and the glory of our overcomer. The nature, the work, and the glory of our overcomer, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's begin with the, the reality of the fact that Jesus is by nature. This is an important concept. Jesus Christ is by nature the great overcomer. We just saw this, and we saw this in chapter 5 and verse 5 of Revelation, when he is called the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, and it says that he has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. This is who he is, and this is what he does. He overcomes, and this is exactly what Jesus promised to the disciples. In John chapter 16 and verse 33, Jesus said, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but he says, but take courage. But take courage. Nenikeka. I hope I have overcome the world. That's who he is. It's what he does. He's the overcomer. You know, it's interesting. We have a lot of tales from history that celebrate the conquerors of this world. And Alexander the Great, of course, is one of the heralded conquerors of the world. There's uh, um, uh, Napoleon is oftentimes celebrated as a great world conqueror. I think there's even a movie that's come out um, celebrating and glamorizing his life. And yet both of these men, though they had a, a temporal victory in this world, they're dead. They're dead, and there's no bringing them back. And yet the world celebrates these men. They glamorize these men. They glorify these men. And yet these men in all their pride and pomp in no way can compare to the Lord Jesus Christ. Our Savior did not come exalting himself, but he came in humility. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. And in Zechariah 9.9, we see this great conqueror and overcomer who is called our king. 
who is coming to you, it says. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. This is a small, humble animal. This is exactly how our Savior entered triumph, triumphantly into Jerusalem with the humility of entering on a colt, the foal of a donkey. How does a king, mounted on a foal of a donkey, conquer nations? It is said of Alexander the Great that he was handsome beyond all precedence for a king with expressive features, soft blue eyes, and luxuriant auburn hair. Mounted on his seat, he appeared more than human. And yet, what can be said of Christ? He had no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was mounted not, not on a horse fit for a conqueror, but on a donkey, even a foal of a donkey. Brethren, remember this. The standards of the world and its understanding of being a conqueror and being a victor and a champion is entirely upside down. The victories that men seek to achieve in this world are the temporal victories that do not last into eternity. But our Savior is our victor and overcomer, and his victory endures forever and ever without end. And he is a victor who is gentle, compassionate, and extends an abundance of mercy. In Matthew chapter 12, we read about the individual, the man who had a withered hand. And Jesus said to the man who had the withered hand, he says, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored to normal like the other. But the Pharisees went out and counseled together against him as to how they might destroy him. But Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him. And he healed them all and warned them not to make him known in order that what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled saying behold my servant whom I have chosen my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased I will put my spirit upon him and he shall proclaim justice to the Gentiles he will not quarrel nor cry out nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets a battered reed he will not break off and a smoldering wick he will not put out until he leads justice to Nikos. Victory. These conquerors who conquered nations throughout the world, throughout history, never achieved justice. Their victory was selfish. It was the product of their own greed, their own desire for fame. But the victory that our Savior has achieved is a victory of true justice that leads to true peace. Brethren, I know I've shared with you on, a, on several occasions now the sad reality of what is being imported into the modern church, what is typically called the social justice movement. And it's strange because they use the word justice, but the ideology that they're promoting has nothing to do with actual justice. Listen to the words of Chanika Walker Barnes, who wrote a book called A Prayer for a Weary Black Woman, who speaks of her concept of justice by offering up the following prayer. Dear God, 
please help me to hate white people. Or at least to want to hate them, at least I want to stop caring about them individually and collectively. I want to stop caring about their misguided racist souls to stop believing that they can be better, that they can stop being racist. Brethren, churches are actually using this book to promote what they call social justice. I don't care if we're in the antebellum south with white racists plaguing the black community or if we're talking about this prayer, it is all bigotry. It is all that which is against true justice. The justice and the victory that our savior accomplished is one that brings us all together no matter who we are or what we look like, and we all stand shoulder to shoulder at the foot of the cross of Christ. That is a victory. And that is a victory that gives glory to the Savior, our great overcomer. By the way, the good news about heaven is, is there's not going to be any more sinning. What a wonderful place that will be. The reality of our Savior's victory and the fact that he is by nature the overcomer is revealed to us again when we are reminded of the fact that the nations who will rage against the Lamb are spoken of in Revelation chapter 17 where it says, these will wage war against the Lamb and the Lamb will overcome. There's the word again, them. He will overcome them. Why? Because he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those who are with him are called the chosen and faithful. Why does Jesus overcome his enemies? Because he is Lord of lords and King of kings. There's no way to compete against him. You cannot compete against divine omnipotence. This is why I believe one of the reasons why the church needs to become reinvested in the messianic psalms of the Old Testament is because the New Testament writers celebrated the beauty of the truths that are revealed in psalms like Psalm 2 and Psalm 110. And we see the language of these psalms repeatedly in the New Testament where the Lord promises his victory over the nations and the father says of the son, ask of me and I will surely give the nations as thine inheritance and the very ends of the earth as thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt shatter them like earthenware. Jesus will not be defeated. He is the overcomer. And then we are told as the children of God, this at the conclusion of the psalm, how blessed are all who take refuge in him. There's no greater place of safety than our, in our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the overcomer. We just sang the words of this song. I fear no foe with thee at hand to bless. Ills have no weight and tears no bitterness. Where is death's sting? Where grave thy victory? I triumph still if thou abide with me. Brethren, this is the message that we have repeatedly, not just in the scriptures. I'm thankful for, for hymns that remind us of this important truth. 
This is something that we need to meditate on on a, on a regular basis to remember that our Lord is our great overcomer. Now consider with me not only the fact that he is the overcomer by nature, but consider his work as the great overcomer. From the very beginning in the book of Genesis, we see the promise of his victory over sin and death and over Satan himself in Genesis chapter 3. We're speaking to the serpent in the garden. The Lord declared that he, the devil, will bruise Christ on the heel, but Christ will render the death blow to Satan's head in victory. That promise of victory is given to us from the very beginning of the Bible itself. And so we have this theme of our Savior triumphing over death, triumphing over sin and the devil himself. This is why John says in 1 John 3, 8, the one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose that he might destroy the works of the devil. And I say to you, these are not just interesting factoids that we are to store in our brain. These are truths that need to be embedded deeply in our hearts such that they impact us from day to day. Because without them, we're just going to live in fear and stumble over our own sin and flesh. The Apostle Paul, writing to the church at Ephesus, prayed earnestly for them that they would understand this principle of the fact that our Savior is the victor, the conqueror over sin and death. And he says it this way in verse 18 of chapter 1 of Ephesians. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the hyperbalone megathos dunameos, the superabounding greatness of his power. I love that expression. I want you to see, understand, and comprehend the superabounding power of Christ. I want you to know it, understand it, dwell on it, and consider it, and understand this, that all of these things, all of this demonstration of his power, these are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. This is not a temporary victory, it is an eternal one, and it is one that we are partakers of because we are now in him through faith. Brethren, this is our Lord. This is his victory. And we have to understand, we need to meditate on this constantly. If we don't, our souls will no longer be anchored to this important truth. If we don't meditate on this, we'll drift into realms of fear and doubt and distrust. You know, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul makes such a striking statement. He really gives us the all or nothing argument in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, if Christ has not been raised, what? Your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins, then those also who have, who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. In other words, 
If we take the victory of Christ, his great work, his great victory at the cross, his great victory of his resurrection, if you take that out of Christianity, everything vanishes. There's nothing left. There's no hope. And then he says this, when this perishable will have put on the imperishable and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying, what is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? There's the word victory. It's the same word, Nikkei. What victory can death have over the great victor and, and champion and overcomer, the Lord Jesus Christ? There is no victory to be had over him. Christ defeated the devil, sin, and death. And he is our great champion. Again, brethren, I say to you, to the extent that we lose sight of these things, we will falter, we will fail, we will stumble in our own fear and in sin. You know, in 2018, I had a, a mini stroke that alerted Sandra to take me to the emergency room. Immediately, they began to investigate why, why I had this mini stroke. One of the things that they were concerned about was is that maybe I had some sort of cancer. They took an x-ray and they found a tumor in my lung. And it turned out to be a, a cancerous tumor. You know, moments like these really force you to check your theology. I mean, it's one thing to preach a sermon or read the Bible and, or go to a Bible study and have ideas in your heart and mind and think about these things. But when you're brought to a moment like this, you begin to realize that your theology has to be there for you. The, the, the word of God is your only hope and support. So I began to check my theology. And on the one hand, I was rebuked because I think it was just the year prior that I had preached through James 4, where James says it's evil to presume upon tomorrow. He doesn't just say it's a bad idea, he says it's evil. He says, don't do it. And in the moment of contemplating that, I thought to myself, you know, I've been presuming upon tomorrow too much. As I contemplated what would happen and what the future would bring, I contemplated these things and I began to realize I need to repent of the sin of presuming upon tomorrow and that I need to look to heaven more. And so I began to get my affairs in order, prepared a will that I, by the way, I don't know, some of you who have procrastinated getting a will done, I'll tell you what, that got me going on doing a will fix that right away but along with this came an amazing sense of peace as I began to repent of my presumption over my own life I began to realize that I needed to give my life to Christ more and understand that my life is not my own it's his and I'm not going to live one more day than what God has ordained for me, no matter what I do. I always like to say, 
eat well, exercise daily, and die anyway. <laughs> and there's only so much we can do, folks, okay? We all have the same future in that sense. But I also began to realize that I needed to learn the lesson that the Apostle Paul explains to us so beautifully and remember all the trials that he went through. But he says this when speaking to the elders at Ephesus before departing from them and being arrested in Jerusalem. He says, but I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself in order that I may finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. Did you hear that? I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself. I'm not hanging on to this. This is God's. And he'll take it whenever he has ordained. And instead of look, living in fear of death, which, by the way, is so easy to do, isn't it? Fear of pain, suffering, death. But we need to give these things to God and entrust our souls to a faithful creator. Spurgeon says it so well. He says, oh, child of God, death has lost its sting because the devil's power over it is destroyed. Then cease to fear dying. Ask grace from God, the Holy Spirit, that by an intimate knowledge and a firm belief in your Redeemer's death, you may be strengthened for that dread hour. Living near the cross of Calvary allows you to think of death with pleasure and welcome it when it comes with intense delight. It is sweet to die in the Lord. It is a covenant blessing to sleep in Jesus. Death is no longer banishment. It is a return from exile, a going home to the many mansions where the loved ones already dwell. When we part from this world, brethren, we're going home. And that's what we need to remember. And we're going home because of our great overcomer, Jesus Christ. In the book of Revelation, chapter 12, we see the saints in glory who overcome. They overcome the devil. It says in verse 11 of chapter 12, it says that they overcame him, the devil, devil, because of the blood of the lamb and because of the word of their testimony, and they did not love their life even to death. They weren't hold, holding on to this. They knew that their lives were not their own, but they were the possession of Almighty God. And they entrusted their souls to him. Again, I say to you, brethren, this spirit of fear and self-preservation is something we all struggle with. It's okay to admit that, but we need to understand these things we need to give to God. You know, I, be I believe that the entire COVID-19 ordeal in many ways re revealed the unprecedented fear that men have regarding their own lives. 
And I would just say to you, brethren, we, we cannot live in a zero-risk society. There's no such thing. You know, we live in a society that has things like health insurance. We've got insurance for just about everything now. Why? Because we want to live in a, a, a zero-risk or risk-free society. But I, I got a question for you. What kind of health insurance did the Apostle Paul have? Or the Apostle John. He, the, the man was boiled in oil. You think his insurance would cover that if he had it? I don't know. But they didn't have this. We live in a culture and society where we have all kinds of insurance for anything. They didn't. I think there's something very healthy about this to understand that, again, our hope can't be in our, in our insurers or our medical doctors or any of these other things. Our lives are in God's hands. John Fox, in his classic Fox's Book of Martyrs, speaks of John the Apostle. In this way, he says, The Apostle John, brother of James, is credited with founding the seven churches of Revelation, Revelation Smyrna, Pergamos, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea, Thyatira, and Ephesus. It was from Ephesus, it was said, that he was arrested and sent to Rome, where he was cast into a large vessel filled with boiling oil that did not harm him. As a result, he was released and banished by the emperor Domitian to the Isle of Patmos, where he wrote the book of Revelation. After being released from Patmos, he returned to Ephesus, where he died about 98 AD. He was the only apostle to escape a violent death. Even with all the continual persecutions and violent deaths, the Lord added to the church Daily, the church was now deeply rooted in the doctrine of the apostles and watered abundantly with the blood of the saints. And then he says this, she was prepared for the cruel persecutions that were to come. And why is this so? Because their eyes were set upon one person, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the overcomer over sin and death and the grave. Brethren, this is where we need to set our sights. We need to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of the faith. And finally, as to his glory as our overcomer, in many respects we've considered his glory as our overcomer, But remember what the Apostle Paul says. This is so beautiful, so precious. He says in 1 Thessalonians 4.14, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Fallen asleep in Jesus. When a believer dies, brethren, don't refer to them as dead. Follow the scriptures and refer to them as those who sleep in Jesus. We call it sleep because they are awaiting the day when Jesus will awaken them and take them home. That's why we use that word. 
Years ago, when we had the opportunity and privilege to go to historic Williamsburg, we spent a lot of time in the funeral area. By the way, you can't help that. If you go to historic Williamsburg, there are, funeral, uh, there are graveyards all over the place. And while that might seem icky to some people, we, we go to these places because the tombstones that are there are remarkable. None of those who are buried who know Christ, who knew Christ, are referred to as the dead. The inscriptions that we read refer to them as sleeping in Jesus. This is the way we need to understand things. This is the way we must think. The glory of our Savior is that he is the overcomer, and he is going to awaken his people in the resurrection and bring us home. And nobody's going to be entering into the kingdom of heaven, patting themselves on the back for their achievement of getting there. It's all going to be for the glory, to the glory of Christ. And where are we going to go when that day comes? It says that in the holy city, the new Jerusalem, in Revelation chapter 21, that his saints shall dwell there, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be among them, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall no longer be any death, there shall no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write for these words are faithful and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes shall inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. That's where we're going. When we pass from this life, we sleep in Jesus, awaiting the day in which we're going home this home. If there are any here this morning who do not know Christ, if you have not yet placed your faith and trust in Christ, I call out to you here this morning. No one understand that even sitting in the pew right now, you can entrust your soul to Christ. Place your faith in Jesus Christ who died on the cross in your stead. He bore our sins and he bore the just judgment that we ourselves deserved when he died on that cross so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Oh, believe in him. Only in him can you have peace and rest and joy. And to those who know Christ, I say to you this morning, Shun and mortify this fear of death. Kill it daily. To the extent that you fear for your own life, your own safety, give it to God. Confess the matter to him. No one understand that our daily privilege 
is not to look to ourselves, but to raise our eyes to heaven, to look to Christ, and to long for his return. This is why we cry out and use the word Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. This is what the believer is to do daily. And I wanted us to sing a song, a concluding hymn that calls us to do just that, to look to Christ. Now, this is a hymn that may not be familiar to most. So I'm going to ask Karen if she would just play through the tune once, please. Thank you.